Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From building a well-balanced college list and developing a payment strategy to creating a high school plan and more. Each episode will help guide your family through various steps of the process. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of Getting In a College Coach Conversation. I'm your host, Ian Fisher. This week, we've got a great show that is lined up for you on this Valentine's Day, or at least it's Valentine's Day where we are, uh, you're off in the future now listening to this uh, eight days after we've recorded it, but we're really excited to bring this content to you and to give you some updates, uh, first of all, on the California State University system. So starting, we want to welcome my colleague, Gabby Tobias, who is here from the great state of California. Hi, Gabby. Welcome to the show. Hey, Ian. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. And we were just talking before the show that the, the Cal State application process remains pretty consistent as it has always been. They're not changing anything about what they ask students for in the near future. They continue not to include test scores as a part of their process, but you've done a lot of digging at Mm -hmm. some updates across the system and some things that we think folks might like to know out there. Um, Let's start first with the update as a result of the FAFSA delay. And maybe you can just clue some folks in on what's going on with financial aid and how that might impact certain dates and deadlines this year. Yeah, of course. Um, so financial aid has definitely been a different year than we've experienced in the past in admissions. I've talked to a number of parents and just reiterated that this is not a, a usual year that we've had due to financial aid. Um, so we've had a bit of a delay in the past, but I know Chrissy's going to be on next to kind of discuss right. a little bit more of the ins and outs of that. Um, but due to that delay, that delays um, the fast we getting that information to colleges. So we've had a number of colleges who have extended their enrollment deadline. So traditionally across the board, um, May 1st is the enrollment deadline for students to make that final decision, have a celebration, confetti, all that. Um, and now it is extended for the CSU system. And then we'll include the UCs in here too um, until May 15th. They have decided that last week. Um, so students have until May 15th to make that final enrollment deposit and decide upon which campus they will choose. I was thinking about this um, earlier today. It was just May 1st has always been the deadline, but it also doesn't feel like it has to be May 1st, right? It's not as though something happens on May 2nd for students that they need right. to get ready for. So I think this delay is really wise. Um, yeah. And you're right, Chrissy is going to be on for the next segment or, or the, the last segment of today's show. And we'll be talking a little bit about what families can do as they're trying to make sense of these financial aid awards. Um, but as always, I think we appreciate the leadership from the California state system in saying, hey, we're going to push this time back because we know how important this information is going to be for populations that we serve. Absolutely. So great. I I think that's good news for families in what has otherwise been quite a hectic year with financial aid. Um, And we won't unpack with all of our opinions (laughs) on that that, (laughs) today. That's right. (laughs) Now, you said that there was some really interesting stuff that's happening with the CSUs and their transfer success pathway, which is new to them. Can you just give a little explanation of what the transfer success pathway is and who it's meant to serve? Yeah, absolutely. So this is something that I attended a California State Council Conference back in 2022 fall. And so this was something that was under the wraps that they were discussing during then. And I think it excited all of us as counselors because, you know, the UCs had something similar to this. And so we were excited the Cal States were able to kind of add their own touch and personal spin to this. Um, But really overall, the goal of the transfer success pathway is to make the process for California community college students and to make it a little bit more easier, accessible to transfer to the Cal States. Um, And not just the application process, right? Because I think the application process is a little bit more straightforward than a lot of other applications. But I think also what comes into that is credits classes, you know, making sure that additional things are transferable, which I think can kind of get a little bit in the weeds and can get a little complicated with students and counselors and academic counselors. And so this pathway is designed to kind of help ease and and smooth that process for students. 
I think they said about 40% of CSU undergrads actually transfer in from California community colleges, which is a big percentage. That's huge. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> so they wanted to make some sort of pathway to kind of make it a little bit more easier for them. So essentially what it is in early 2024, um, the CSU is creating more of a centralized resource to track their community college courses, to minimize credit loss. Um, and so it's a whole entire kind of transfer portal or transfer planner. So you can access it from a computer, a tablet, a phone. So it's really easily accessible. It actually went online yesterday and the day before just to kind of look at it. And it's really easy. Students will just need to kind of create an account to put in the hmm. community college that they'll be enrolling in. And the nice thing is that they'll be able to work in tandem with community college counselors also CSU transfer planner counselors, academic counselors to make sure that's three people that they'll all have kind of accountability for to make sure they're kind of staying on track and staying towards the course. Um, I, yeah. And I, I think this is great. I think because, and I don't know what, you know, the conversations that you've had with families, but we'll talk sometimes with families who've got seniors in high school and they're yeah. considering the community college route. They're also looking at four-year colleges and sometimes my word of caution is you can sometimes get lost within the community college system. You can take classes that don't transfer. You can find yourself yeah. exploring electives that are not getting you any closer to a goal of transferring to a four-year institution if that's what you want. And it sounds yeah. like this is set up to, to solve that problem, to, to yeah. sort of keep students from aimlessly taking classes in community college, but getting, getting them on track. Is, is that consistent with the, the yeah. stated purpose of the, yes, the program? Yes. That that's consistent to kind of help solve that problem in it. And it's kind of be that middleman and that liaison to kind of say, okay, you enter into one agreement with the CSU of your choice. You choose to enroll at community college. The overall or overarching goal and kind of the end point is once the students enter into this agreement, they have to say that, you know, the goal is to graduate within three years and then enter into CSU. Um, so I think that's correct. And kind of what you're saying is that's that nice kind of thing is it makes it a little bit more simplistic, easier, and, and kind of getting to that end point a bit more easier than what was before. So, gotcha. Now, I I think the UC has always had this this um, tag, the Transfer Admission Guarantee Program, not with every single one of their campuses, right. but with many of their campuses where students could apply to tag with a particular UC, and that would guarantee them admission if they took the right courses and got good enough grades in that space. Is this sort of the the CSU version of of that tag program? Yeah, I think this is going to be in a sense. I mean, they're still rolling it out. And I'm sure they may have some couple things to iron out, you know, depending on how this year goes. But I think this is essentially going to be kind of that precedent of that tag program for the UC campuses. Versus students will have over 23 campuses to choose from. So quite a bit of variety, you know, up and down the coast of California. Yeah. Um, I think this is going to be very much similar to that. I think it's going to give students a lot of options to look into. So who's eligible for this program? You said that, that it's it's fairly new now. Um, is this eligible? Is this something that students should be thinking about just as they're starting their community college term this fall? Does it apply to students who've already been in community college for a year? Who should be listening especially carefully to this segment to learn more? Yeah, I think it's, so this year they've stated that 2023 high school graduates and beyond. So even people who've maybe started um, who enroll in a California community college and commit to this are going to be eligible. So they've opened up to this fall cohort. Um, and so they opened up October 1st and then closed that September 30th. And so now high school students who are going to be graduating in 2024, they're eligible for it as well. Too. So if you're planning to enroll in a California community college in 2024, or maybe for, for students who maybe the CSU system didn't work out for them due to X, Y, and Z financial reasons, maybe academic reasons, maybe they were ineligible. This is a great opportunity to take advantage of. You know, if you're planning on going to a California community college for the next few years, look into this. Um, you can go into, I think, Cal State Apply, and right there in big red is Transfer uh, Success Pathway. And that way you can kind of get a sense for what your options are like. But it is available for fall 2024 freshmen and those who are graduating. Sometimes when students hear about programs like the Transfer Admission Guarantee or this new CSU program, they think that it might take away some of their choice if they connect with that school. Is there something that requires a student to go to a CSU as a transfer pathway if they enter into this agreement or can they still apply 
to other schools as transfer applicants as well? I don't believe it's necessarily cut off yet to where they have to go to the CSU. I believe they still have their options open for them, right? I think the only thing is kind of similar to the talent program for the UCs is that it's just one CSU that they can get into. But if they're wanting to go to a private institution, or maybe they want to open up their ideas to an out-of-state institution, and they really know, okay, this is the one CSU that I tried for initially, and maybe it didn't work out, this can also be a great option for them. So they also can express other interest um, while working on this transfer success pathway too. And I think one of the the main you know, bits of, of advice that we would give here is be aware of what these pathways are going to look like for schools that you might expect to be interested in, right? right? I, I think there are a lot of students that say, well, I'm, I'm going to apply to a UC. Um, CSUs are a second choice for me, let's say. Right. And so I'm not going to consider this option. But what you're saying is, actually, if you keep all of these options open simultaneously, you're giving yourself the greatest possibility of success as a transfer candidate. Exactly. You're you kind of have a sense of, okay, this is exactly what my pathway could look like within this transfer success pathway. And let me explore, like you're saying, my other options. Maybe I want to, you know, throw my hat into a few private or a few out-of-states or a few, maybe a UC campus. But at least you kind of have a little bit more guaranteed sense of, okay, I know I'm, I'm taking these right courses. I'm working with these correct transfer success counselors. That, you know, I know kind of what the end goal will look like that's great. Great stuff. And, and I think something for families out there to continue to research, to learn a little bit more about as their students are starting at, at California community colleges. Now you've done some digging, you've looked around at a lot of Cal States. There are a lot of updates oh gosh, within yeah. the system. Um, and the Cal State system, I think for me personally, is always a little surprising in terms of what it's up to, the kinds of students they're serving. We had a great segment last year where we welcomed a couple of Cal State alumni on the show, and they talked about their experience at those Cal State schools. Um, one of them had gotten into a UC, but chosen uh, to attend the, the Cal State instead uh, and got a really great, wonderful education there. And so I think people are noticing that there are some exciting opportunities available, especially for those, those California residents. So let's go around the horn. Let's talk about some of the updates that you've noticed that seem particularly exciting that might be interesting for our families. Um, yeah. And we'll start with with Humboldt, Cal Poly Humboldt. Um, you said they've got some new programs, right? Yes. So they recently transitioned to a polytechnic institution. So they had 10 new academic programs this year. Um, so they have a bachelor's in data science and energy systems engineering. You know, engineering and, and just data science in general is huge and, and blowing up. And so this is going to be a really great interdisciplinary program that helps kind of meet the needs of the surrounding population and just overall students who are interested in these types of pathways. So I think that's going to be really cool and something kind of exciting just to look out for kind of within the next few years or just within the next academic cycle. So I think 10 is huge, right? You usually don't see 10 all at once. Um, but I think for that institution, that transition is going to be something that's big. That's really cool. Um, and Humboldt State has a a great ultimate Frisbee team for those who are interested. Oh. They were a, they were a uh, rival of ours uh, from Northern California. It's a great, beautiful part of the of the state as well. Oh. Um, what about what's going on with the the Titans down in uh, Fullerton? So my next door neighbors. Um, so they have some really great programs. So Fullerton has been known traditionally for their bachelors, entertainment, um, communications. Uh, they're right next door to Disneyland, so. Per- provides great access to students who are interested in those types of fields and those pathways. But we've kind of seen them transitioning to open up just a little bit more too. So they've just announced the new art degree program. Um, so an art history, which combines kind of art theory and appreciation courses like 3D modeling, museum, education, and advanced ceramics. I actually cool. visited Cal State Fullerton and they talked in depth about their graphic design and their art opportunities. And I had no idea. Um, so I think this program is going to be able to kind of pair nicely with that as well. Um, and they've also introduced a new bachelor's in communication disorders um, in several courses through their electronic or not their electronic, electrical and computer engineering program. So another big popular program. So if you're a student interested in that, look to Fullerton. They just announced a couple of new courses and have really kind of expanded their offerings. That's great. I want to skip up to uh, Cal Poly Slow, San Luis Obispo. That's the one that's typically most known for engineering, but they've got an exciting new program 
that has nothing to do with engineering. Um, what, what's going on with that new opportunity? So this is actually something that I loved because this is what I studied in college. So I was actually excited to see that they're doing this. Um, so they have, I'm just looking at my notes a little bit so I can make sure I get it correct. Um, they have the Hereta Lewis Social Justice and Residential Learning. So it's geared towards people who are passionate about social justice and equity, mm. um, which is great. And so it's going to be a whole cohort and residential community for those students. Now, priority for students who are interested in that are going to be given to ethnic study undergrads, because I think that pairs a little bit nicely with that. Uh, but they'll be required to participate in credit academic courses. And the goal is to provide more holistic understanding of social justice and inclusive leadership. So that's going to be exciting for them. Another kind of, again, STEM-related no, it's and it's great to see more kind of interdisciplinary work that is mm-hmm. is breaking those silos and giving students to think about the opportunity of their work on communities in which they live. Um, and you also shared that that slow is establishing an off-campus housing yeah. program that'll help students to transition from on to off-campus living during their time as students there. Yeah. Um, I want to skip ahead just to impaction because this is going to be something that our parents of high school students are always asking about. Impaction, of course, refers to the difference between demand and supply in terms of incoming freshman seats. What are we hearing from schools out there? Which ones are impacted? Which are not? Is there any change uh, that we we might expect? So the nice thing is over 10, I think a little bit around uh, 16 campuses are still non-impacted, which is great. So leaves room and lots of opportunities for students um, who are interested in a couple of different majors and campuses to really kind of explore that. Um, seven campuses still do remain impacted. So we'll have LA, Long Beach, Fullerton, San Diego, San Jose, you know, some of the more popular campuses or more campuses that get a little bit more applicants still do remain impacted. Um, the nice thing is, is that Cal State Northridge just announced um, that they're going to ease impaction for 2024 through 2025 application year. Um, and so only four majors, so they're kind of more popular majors, accountancy, business admin, media, film, those are still going to be impacted. Um, but they've kind of gotten rid of that local area impaction requirement. And so all California residents have those same requirements to meet. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. So little changes. I think the popular CSUs remain the popular CSUs, but a great reminder that throughout the system, there are many opportunities for students to to look for really great educational programs. Um, I can't believe we got through all this stuff. Gabby, thanks for doing all of this digging and research and bringing it to our families. I think it's super helpful. Yeah, I love the CSUs. I think they provide great opportunities. And I still do want to plug one more thing is there are a number of CSUs that are still accepting applications. You're still mm. looking for schools to apply to. So you can also go to Cal State Apply and it can show a drop down of schools that are still accepting those applications. So for students who are still looking, there are still options. That's a great reminder. Thanks a lot for coming on the show today. And as you alluded to, we're going to have Chrissy on in the next segment to talk a little bit about the current financial aid landscape. So thanks a lot for being here, Gabby. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Ian, for having me. All right, folks, we'll be right back. Don't go away. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. Getting in, listeners, we're thrilled to announce the first edition of the Bright Horizons College Coach Book Club. We are reading Acceptance, a memoir by Emmy Neatfeld, chronicling Emmy's journey from foster care to Harvard. We'll be hosting Emmy on our April 4th episode, so please read along with us. You can find a link to the book on College Coach's social media channels, including Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and TikTok. And send us any questions you have for Emmy by March 22nd. We can't wait to go on this reading journey with you. In every college application, there's that moment of pause before a student hits send. Is this my best work? With Bright Horizons College Coach, your student will hit submit with confidence. We take the guesswork out of applying to college. Students get help with everything from essays, summer planning and visits, to testing strategy, merit aid, and more. As for our results, 100% of students have earned acceptances, nearly all to one of their top choice goals. 
Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Getting In, a college coach conversation. We're joined in this second segment today by Chrissy Ferran, who's one of our college finance experts here at College Coach. Hey, Chrissy. Welcome back to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. We're glad to have you. We're gonna put you in the the hot seat today because there's a lot <laughs> there's a lot that's going on with the FAFSA, and I think um, we don't need to get into any long recriminations of why we are where we are and what's what's happening right. and why this was decided and the way that it was decided. But if you can just help families to understand, especially families of seniors, why this process has been drawn out a little bit and what the delays are that they can expect. I think that'll be really helpful before we start to talk a little bit more about differences in financial aid packages and how to ask for more aid from, from schools. So, yeah. so what's going on? Oh gosh, there's a lot. So that as, as you know, the FAFSA was delayed just to begin with this year. So normally it opens October 31st. Uh, they didn't have it open until the end of December because they went through uh, what was called a FAFSA simplification process. So they were shortening the FAFSA. They were trying to make it more simplified, easier for families to fill out. More families might qualify for aid. So the delays now are... Um, so they're still having a lot of issues with families filling out the FAFSA. We've been talking with a lot of families just that aren't, they're just not having an easy time getting it processed, getting it filled out. But basically the Department of Education now came out and they first had said that schools would be able to download the information from the FAFSAs into their, their uh, platforms probably by February 1st. Last week, I believe they came out and said they're just experiencing more delays. And so now schools aren't going to be able to download that information until probably the first part of March. So there's not a a date, so to speak. It's maybe March 1st. It could be the first week of March sometime. So that's really causing a lot of delays and a lot of frustration for families that we're trying to get that information out there that normally you might start hearing back from schools with your financial aid offers, you know, middle of February, first part of March schools aren't even going to have that information to be able to offer financial aid awards yeah. until probably, I mean, you you could be as late as April 1st, maybe for some of these schools um, where you're not getting your offers. So the delays that are, are being caused by the Department of Education, basically for the FAFSA is what's going to be the frustrating part at this point for families. And, you know, everybody wants to know how they're paying for college as, as usual. And if they're not getting that until the end of March, first part of April, that's going to be, you know, that can be very stressful. So certainly, unfortunately, it's a waiting game. Yeah. And I, and we're seeing that some colleges are deciding to push back their yeah. enrollment deadline into mid-May. We yeah. might see more more colleges that, that begin to do that as well. Uh, about how many f- families, I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but how many families each year submit a FAFSA in as an application for for aid? Oh my gosh. I'm not even sure I know. I mean, it's gotta be, I, I'm not sure I know that number. That's it's millions, number. right? I mean, it's, like it's, it's gotta be millions. I, <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a huge amount. Most people do file a FAFSA, whether they're um, eligible for need-based aid or not, just to make sure they're, they're getting everything filled out. Right. So it's gotta be in the millions. That's right. So um, lots of people are doing this and uh, this question, you know, the, the segment that we were creating here was, about a family that says, hey, my financial aid award is actually not enough for me to be able to afford the cost of college. What do I do? And let's put a pin in the idea that a lot of families don't actually know their financial aid award just yet. But, <laughs> right. but these are coming down, right? They'll be getting them back from school. Some of these awards may be estimates uh, at yeah. this point. So we'll we'll talk through this segment. And if you haven't gotten your financial aid package just yet, Come on back, put a bookmark on this this episode, and then you can come back and get some advice from Chrissy about what to do in this context. So let's say a family gets their offer, it's final um, or not final. Are there steps that they can take to to adjust that aid to to ask for for more funding? 
Yeah, so there's a few different things you want to think about um, as you start to hear back from schools. One thing that you can certainly uh, look at is your own um what we call special circumstances. So if you're submitting your financial aid this year, anybody that submits a financial aid, um, a FAFSA, sorry, that it, they're looking at their 2022 tax information. Mm-hmm. And so maybe a family fills out a FAFSA and um, they they think, you know, this my tax year that I'm looking at isn't correct. You know, I, I lost my job. I was laid off. A spouse retired Maybe they had a big bonus in 2022 that they're not getting this year or they got in 2023. So one thing they can do is really look at what currently is happening in their financial picture. Maybe they pay for relatives, you know, in a different country. They send money back to parents or even here they have parents move in with them. So there's lots of different reasons that you can have um, what we call special circumstances that you can talk with schools about. Um, You do have to submit your FAFSA with all the initial correct information on it. Um, but then you can go back and talk with schools to see if they can do updates um, to reflect what's currently happening rather than what what they're looking at from two years ago now. So it's it's typically prior, prior year information is being used and yeah. it's possible and, and quite likely in many circumstances that things will change in that period of time. Yeah. What about... Um, and this, I think this probably doesn't impact the ability to ask for more aid, but what about a family that has seen a positive change in their finances in that intervening year? Let's say uh, a big raise or a bonus, something along those lines that changes their income, not for 2022, but for 2023. Mm-hmm. Is there something that they need to just be aware of as the four-year process of college continues yeah. on so that they are not getting an unexpected or different bill later yeah, on? Yeah, that's... Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, most colleges, for the, for the most part, colleges will require families to fill out the FAFSA each year that your child's in college. And that FAFSA that you're filling out is based on a different tax year. So for their first year this year, it's going to be based on 2022. Mm-hmm. The next year as a sophomore, it's going to be looking at 2023 tax information. And if you know they say, hey, well, I did get a great raise this year, or I, I got a new job, that can negatively impact your eligibility for need-based financial aid. So, I mean, there can be some colleges out there that will say, hey, we'll guarantee, you know, the uh, the aid that you have your first year, we'll, we'll guarantee that for four years. There's not a lot of them, but I think if a family is in that situation now where, you know, they're looking back a year ago or two years ago now for their first year, they really want to make sure they're talking with the financial aid office at the school they ultimately select and find out, you know, what what does happen from year to year? Is it all purely based on that year's current tax return, or is it, you know, something different? Something to be aware of. And and is it fair to say that if someone did get a raise in 2023, it, it won't affect aided eligibility for this first year? Correct. And and that's not. You don't have to worry about asking a financial aid office about that potential change. Right. Okay. Right. Right. Okay, good. Um, so these special circumstances that you're talking about that might be um, changes in terms of your income or changes in terms of your financial circumstances, how do you communicate these with financial aid offices in order to ask them for for more support? Yeah, it doesn't it's not a super easy process sometimes because the problem is is when you're submitting a special circumstance to a school, it's not like submitting one FAFSA and that information gets, you know, disseminated to all the schools you choose. Right. With yeah. a special circumstance, you have to do it for each school that your child's applying to. So we talk with families that say, well, you know, we're applying to eight schools or we're applying to 10 schools. Unfortunately, you do have to submit the paperwork to each school. So if there are, if you filled out the FAFSA and your child's applying to five schools or eight schools, and you want to make sure all of those schools know what your circumstance is and that you want them to change the, or update the FAFSA, each school has their own process. A lot of them have their own paperwork that you have to fill out. So typically you have to, so for example, if you say uh, my spouse got laid off or my spouse retired, most schools are going to need documentation for what your circumstance Mm -hmm. is, what the changes are so that they can update the FAFSA. So they may ask for a letter of uh, the layoff notice or a letter saying that your last day of work was when you retired. Um, But each school is going to have their own process. They're all going to have you fill out different forms. So you are going to end up going to every different financial aid office at all of the schools your child applied to if you want to make sure they take that into consideration and figure out what they need to to take all of that information in. 
In your experience, what what is a reasonable amount for a student, for a, a family that's in these special circumstances? Like, are people seeing dramatic changes in the kind of aid that they might be eligible for on the order of tens of thousands of dollars? Or is this something that's more like, you know, you get an extra three to $7,000 here or there. I'm just wondering, like, yeah. what can people anticipate? Maybe you can't answer this question, but I'm curious. I mean, it can really depend. Yeah, so it can really depend. We we do know families that get an extra $10,000, um, or sometimes it's just an extra 2000 I think so much of it depends on the schools your child's applying to. So private schools tend to have larger endowments. They tend mm-hmm. to be able to offer more in scholarships. Um, state schools aren't, you know, don't, don't, they don't cost as much. And so therefore they're not able to really offer as much. So if you're doing a special circumstance at a private school that costs, you know, 75, $80,000 a year, they may, depending on how big your, how, um, big of a financial drop, I guess you had, they could offer you, you know, 10,000. It's, it's so dependent on your circumstance and, and the other parts of your FAFSA, you know, the number of people in your household and uh, things like that. But yeah. So, I mean, it can result in, in large, it, 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 yeah, it can. It's just, if you're telling them, Hey, my income went from, you know, it's $3,000 less than it was last year, probably not going to be a a huge change if any, but if you say, Hey, I I did get laid off or I am retiring and I was earning, you know, $70,000 a year, that's a huge chunk of money that's now missing. So that could, things like that could result in some significant changes. I mean, my, my question is really pointed at this idea of because you have to submit these special circumstances to so many schools, I think it makes sense to try and narrow that number. And I think you can do that in terms of, of course, the preference of your student, but also yeah. in some ways, like how far away are we from a financial aid package, right? If I've got right. two schools that I really like as a student and one has already offered me more money on a significant margin than, than the other one, then yeah. maybe I want to get that other one out of the mix and and use a couple yeah. other safety schools as a part of my appeal process. Uh, yeah. And we definitely talk when families say, well, gosh, we applied to 10 colleges. We have to do this at all of them. It's like, well, do you have a top five list yet? Do you have a top three list? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I would start with those. Like you said, if, if one of them just isn't quite in the picture financially, um, you can always do calculators too on the school's websites. So if you're not sure, each school has a what they call a net price calculator. You could go into the school's net price calculator and put in your new information. Mm-hmm. So rather than putting in your tax information from 2022, you could put in your new income based on you know losing a job or, or retiring or, or something like that to see if that increases or or what kind of an increase that might be. That makes sense. Now you alluded a little bit to merit scholarships as part of this process, and we're talking a lot about need-based aid so far, but merit scholarships are also a big source of support. Um, Some families will say, hey, can I ask for more merit money, right? I've qualified for this president scholarship, or I've won this trustee scholarship. Can I go back and ask for more? Do you find that there typically is an opportunity to increase that award? And and how can families put themselves in positions to be successful there? Yeah, I mean, I you know, we always say it doesn't hurt to go back and ask. So merit scholarships, which are academic in nature, they're not typically based on financial need. Um, those are awarded typically by the admissions office. And so we do talk with families a lot about, you know, it doesn't hurt to go back and say, hey, you know, there's certain reasons that we're thinking we're wondering if you can offer us a little bit more in this merit scholarship. Um, the worst they're going to do is say no. Um, it doesn't change your acceptance into the school. It doesn't change your... Um, current merit scholarship at all. So most schools will look at it. Um, I mean, there are some schools that that will just flat out say, this is your first, your, your final um, offer. We're not going to offer anything more. We don't negotiate. Um, and so, you know, you, you can choose to go back if you want to or not. Um, but I think, you know, for, for schools that are offering you merit, definitely go back. You can put one school against another and say, hey, you know, mm-hmm. school A, you offered us 5,000, but school B, who's very similar to you, or the you know sim- similar program, similar cost, they're offering us seven thousand. You know, so we really want to go to your school, but we're getting a better option and a better deal over at this school. So if there's anything you can do to increase that, so I think you know sharing updates academically. So if if anything has happened with the students since they've applied to school, if they've won awards, if they've joined new clubs, or um, the grades increased, SAT scores increased, I think that can be important to share with the school. Um, just so they can get a look at, you know, what the student's been doing since then. Um, 
But I think, yeah, so I mean, I think it's definitely worth going back to the admissions office at, at any school your child applies to and just seeing if there's anything they can do. So I think average, you know, merit increase from what we hear with families can be three to $3,000 more. That's nice. It just depends, you know, private schools, again, can typically negotiate more than state schools can. They don't have as much funding a lot of times. So some a lot of state schools aren't real hard pressed to negotiate, just kind of depends. And you want to be in a position where you're typically pointing at something that is different uh, yes. as opposed to just saying, hey, it feels like I deserve a little bit right. more money. Like I, I just I just <laughs> right. feel like I'm deserving of merit. Yeah. I actually, I recently had a student that I'm working with that I sent to you because he had um, won a state competition and he said, hey, can I actually qualify for more merit aid yeah. as a result of that? Perfect so example. I'm glad to hear you say that, that sometimes with extracurricular activities, there can be some yeah. opportunity to negotiate a little bit. Absolutely. Um, we are very short on time. And so it, we've talked a lot in private <clears throat> previous shows about loans. And so I'll encourage people to look into our archives for a little bit more information on different types of loans. But I do want to ask you, because this comes up quite often in conversations that I have, and I think a lot of people are curious, what are some great places that you can go to to get private scholarships? So these are scholarships that are not connected to an institution, but that students can take with them wherever they go. They can sometimes be a great way to pay for books, pay for travel expenses, other, other educational expenses. Yeah, I think there's national websites you can look at. Scholarships.com is a site that we um, talk about often. There's one called Mm -hmm. Mm goingmary.com. But I think looking locally, I think that's where students are the most successful is if you can look towards your state. So if you're in California, search for scholarships just for California residents or residents of your county. Talk to your high school counselor if you have someone that's helping you. Um, They can often find even more local scholarships just within your district or your city um, so I think if you can look local, the scholarship dollar amounts aren't going to be as big as a national site. They might be 500 or, or you know, up to 2000, but you're going to be a lot more successful if you search locally. But those scholarship sites, scholarships.com, they'll give you kind of all that information if you put it into the system. And hey, Chrissy, I'd rather win a $500 scholarship than lose a $10,000 scholarship, right? It all so, adds up. It all adds up. That's Absolutely. right. Thanks a lot for coming on the show today and, and helping us talk through this. And I'm I'm sorry that it has been such a confusing winter in the financial aid world. It's been tough. A little more, need some patience a little bit longer. (laughs) Eventually things will be clear. I hope. Yes, they will. Next year will be great. (laughs) Fingers crossed. Thanks a lot, Chrissy, for coming on the show. Appreciate it. When we come back, we're going to be talking a little bit with students who might be interested in a medical pathway. So whether through pre-med or post-baccalaureate courses, we'll unpack those details. So- Stick around. We'll be right back. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. For 25 years, families have trusted Bright Horizons College Coach to guide them through the college admissions process. With nearly all of our students getting into one of their top choice schools, it's no wonder why. Our experience is unmatched. As former admissions officers at top colleges and universities, we've read the essays, reviewed the applications, and made the admissions decisions. We know firsthand what colleges are looking for. Ready to meet our team? Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more. Getting in, listeners, we're thrilled to announce the first edition of the Bright Horizons College Coach Book Club. We are reading Acceptance, a memoir by Emmy Neatfeld, chronicling Emmy's journey from foster care to Harvard. We'll be hosting Emmy on our April 4th episode, so please read along with us. You can find a link to the book on College Coach's social media channels, including Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and TikTok. And send us any questions you have for Emmy by March 22nd. We can't wait to go on this reading journey with you. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the show. We've talked a little bit today about the California state system, 
We've talked about how to ask for more college financial aid, but now we're going to shift gears beyond that uh, initial application period and into the later college period for students who might be interested in medical school, but have decided it somewhat later than I think is typical. We're going to talk today about postback programs. And to do that, we've got one of our medical school admissions experts. Well, our our key medical school admissions expert, Lauren DiProspero here on the show. Hi, Lauren. Welcome. Hi, Ann. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you. I want to just start with pre-med. So many people say they want to be pre-med. I want to be pre-med. I'm pre-med. Pre-med's my major. What's it mean to be pre-med? Let's let's just set the record straight here once and for all. I'm so glad that you're starting with that because that's really a question I wish more students and families would consider, right? What does it truly mean? Like doing that research into what does pre-med mean? Mm -hmm. And so I think the best way to frame it is that pre-med is not a major, right? Your major could be biology or chemistry. It could be classics, right? Pre-med is an advising track. But, you know, as with anything in advising, there's not one right way or best way to move towards medical school, right? And so, you know, students will say that I'm pre-med, they might start taking some classes and aren't sure, or they're just like worried they might not do well in college level science as they transition into college. You know, they might be worried that they didn't make the right decision and it's too late. They're never going to be a doctor, right? The good news is that it's not true, right? And that's why we're here to talk about post programs, right? And where they can come into play giving students a little bit of breathing room to really understand what is pre-med and if that is the right track for them. Now, it, it's it, I, there are so many students I talk to who are like eight years old and want to be a doctor or mm-hmm. 16 years old or whatever you want to say. Like yeah. there are a lot of people who know going in, but you're saying it actually, there, there are some who might arrive at this decision a little bit later on. They yep. come around to wanting to be a doctor because of some experience that maybe they had in the college years. Mm-hmm. And we want to reinforce that it's not too late right. at that point for a student to be in a position to be, what we're talking about here is eligible for medical school admissions, right? Like Correct. that is the, yes. the fundamental bar yes. that we're trying to clear is you've mm-hmm. got to get into medical school. And in order to do that, you've got to have certain criteria as a part of your application. Exactly. Yes. What do those criteria typically look like um, yeah. for student? What do they need to develop in order to be competitive? Yeah. So there are different parts of it. Academically, you have to take um, certain classes for medical school, right? And medicals are going to be, schools are going to be different in what they require or they recommend. But there are a series of science classes. Uh, Psychology and sociology is covered on the MCAT, which is the big exam that you have to take to apply to medical school. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that preparation can look a little different at each college, Um, not as much within the post-bac programs, um, because they're individual classes that you might have to take at your school to get into higher level science classes. So the academic piece is a little bit tailored to where you're getting your education, right? Beyond the academics, right, then you have to take the MCAT, which the academics are preparing you for. It's not just for, you know, being in medical school, which it should. Um, And then on top of that, you have to get clinical experience, right? So you have to be in the patient where the, be in the room where the patient care is happening, right? You might also really like research. And so research can be part of your application. Some medical schools will value that more than others, Um, volunteering, right? There are lots of different ways and pathways into preparing for medical school and what you should be doing is in accordance with what you're interested in, but kind of baseline, it's the academics, it's the MCAT, it's the clinical exposure, and at least a little bit of research. Okay. All right. That sounds like a lot. Yes. Um, (laughs) Yes, it is. I think one of the things we want folks to know about medical school is that it's a lot. Like if it's, if Mm -hmm. it's anything, it's a lot and there's a lot in preparing for it and in doing it certainly. Yeah. Now a post back program, just by definition, Mm -hmm. that's something that happens. Correct me if I'm wrong. After I earn my undergraduate degree, my baccalaureate degree, I've got a BA or a BS in some particular field but I, I, I need to go and take further classes to hit some of the eligibility requirements that you just spelled out. 
Right. Is there anything I'm missing from that basic understanding? Nope. And it's in the name, post-baccalaureate, right? You have your baccalaureate first, and then you're going for something additional. Um, and certainly, you know, there are post-baccalaureate programs aimed at different disciplines, right? We're focused right on the primarily medical, dental, maybe vet school as well, yeah. right? And within this, there are two types of programs for at least like the medical school specifically, since that's my background, are career changers and record enhancers. So there are two different subsets mm. of populations that can benefit. And some programs only support career changes, some only support record enhancers, and some do both. Are those the technical terms or are those terms that you've coined for this segment? They are more technical terms. Okay. You would see that on the website or it would be very clear. And I think it would be good to kind of walk through what the difference between yeah. those two are and who takes that path. But it, most will refer to themselves as that, or you would know based upon how much science you have to finish or if the amount of dedicated time, it becomes pr clear pretty quickly as you get into those websites. So, so let's say I studied philosophy in college, which I did, mm -hmm. and I took chemistry and I really liked chemistry and I got a good grade in that class. But for some reason, I kept, I stuck with philosophy and mm -hmm. I graduated, but towards the end of my college career, I decide, oh, I actually... I'm really interested in medicine. I'm interested in care. I maybe had a particular experience or event that that turned me on to this opportunity, but I never took those science courses beyond chemistry. Yeah. Um, I would be in that case, the career changer, right? The, yes. the person that needs that coursework. Correct. Yes. Because you've taken limited science classes in your undergraduate experience. Okay. If you, if you were a science major and had a substantial record of science classes, um, then this would not be the path for you. This is designed for those who maybe junior or senior year realize their interest in medicine. Maybe they've spent a few years working and decide that they need or want to change. Um, maybe they, you know, thought that they wanted to go pre-med, decided freshman biology was a little too much, a little too hard, but they don't necessarily have you know, that those grades that, you know, would require a record enhancer, but just decided I wanted to do philosophy, right? Yeah. So it's basically at the end of the day, there are few to no science classes. That's what a career changer is. So what am I looking at as a career changer in terms of number of years of study and where mm -hmm. can I go and do this in yeah. order to meet the eligibility requirements for medical school? Yeah, absolutely. So many, but not all of these programs require students to step out of the workforce to focus okay. really solely on preparation for medical school for the length of their program, which is typically one to two years, right? Okay. And that can be really hard for some people, right? And some of these programs can be pretty competitive, right? This is an additional cost on top of then applying to medical school and the cost of medical school. That being said, there are a ton of benefits to attending one of these programs, right? In addition to that structured curriculum, they can help students find research and clinical experiences. And some have what are called linkage programs. So a linkage program is a formal agreement that allows those highly qualified students to link into a medical school before they complete their post-bac program. Mm -hmm. And that allows them to skip that gap year that could follow a post-bac program. So you're still applying, you're still interviewing, you still have to be admitted. It's just like a sidestep type application process. So you don't have to skip a year after your post back. Which seems really important given these students yes. have already done four years undergrad. Now they're doing one or two more years in the post back program and having another year to wait before they get in could yes. be too much, right? So that the linkage exactly. program helps to take away that last year. Exactly. Exactly. Um, some places that I could look for career changer programs, just get yeah. some names out there. Yeah, absolutely. So some of those are Bryn Mawr College, University of Louisville, University of Colorado Boulder, uh, UC Berkeley Extension. There's certainly a website on the AAMC, which is the overseer of the allopathic medical school application process. They have a searchable database of post-baccalaureate pre-medical programs right. that students can find additional uh, programs in. And I noticed you started with Bryn Mawr. Well, it's my I alma mater. Why. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> now, let's talk about record enhancement. I want to make yeah. sure we get this in here, yes. too, because I think one of the things I would worry about is, let's say I struggled in chemistry and biology because I yeah. initially thought I was going to be pre-med 
and it didn't go well. How possible is it for me to improve on that performance and to essentially rewrite my record? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a big question, right? If you didn't do well in your science classes in undergraduate, you really have to be thinking, how well may you do in a post-bac program, yeah. right? What were the reasons for your struggle? Was it that you were in college and you were young and you didn't know how to study or maybe spent too many late night sessions discussing philosophy to focus on your chemistry, Guilty. right? Yeah. Um, and so are those reasons gone or have they been addressed? Did you discover you had a learning difference and have been able to figure out study um, skills that work for you? Right. And so you have to really figure that out before you go forward with a record enhancer or you're going to be doing more of the same. And I think there's a lot of that self inquiry throughout this process of looking at medical school. Why do I want to do this? Why do I want to Mm -hmm. become a doctor? Why did why am I challenged by certain kinds of content? If I can't improve in science, should I be a doctor anyway? Right. Right. Um, I think those are important questions. Some quick hits that you might give us around with somebody looking for a post-bac program, what are some factors that are important for them to consider? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Location, right? Where do you want to live? Where do you live? The cost, the size of the program, linkage agreements. And then there are always those small things that matter to you that make the big difference that I couldn't possibly know that are kind of a must have and deal breaker. Like we always talk about with college, the same thing applies to a linkage program. It's a big commitment and you really need to be thinking about what's important to you. Talk to the post-bac programs, talk to your pre-health advisor. You know, even if you graduated, they should be able to support you as an alumni making this decision. Um, So certainly reach out to those resources and a quick plug for the NAAHP. So that's NAAHP. It's an organization of health professional advisors who have volunteer advisors if you do not have your own pre-health advisor. And so they can help you. There's also an FAQ on post-bac programs there. So certainly take a look at those resources. Many resources to go out there um, and and find the right answer for you. And so if you're looking to trade in Socrates for Hippocrates, Mm -hmm. this is a path that you can take. I'm sorry. I just couldn't help myself. Lauren, (laughs) that was really good. I appreciate you doing that on a sprint. A lot of Mm -hmm. helpful information. Absolutely. It was great. Thanks, Ian. We'll be back again next week. And our focus will be on musicians. We'll be talking about the audition process, about becoming a professional musician. And then, of course, we will dive into college finance to think about how we can ask for more scholarship money. So a little bit of a continuation of today's topic. Until then, have a great week. We hope that FAFSA mess gets solved real soon. And we look forward to seeing you back here again on Getting In. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation. New episodes drop every Thursday. The goal of this show is to demystify the college admissions process for families around the globe. To help with this mission, please leave a review and share with your friends. And to learn more about Bright Horizons College Coach, visit GetIntoCollege.com.